Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part three of Win by Dr. James Diniclo Antonio. This episode will be all about obesity, weight loss, calories, and different satiety and hunger hormones. According to the CDC in 2020, it's estimated that about 34% of U.S. adults have metabolic syndrome and around 42% are obese. So we are clearly in a pandemic of, of obesity and this needs to be addressed. Different athletes and fitness enthusiasts are considered to have it really easy. They're lean and in shape because of good genetics or being addicted to working out. It might be true that genes have some role, but they're not clearly as important as epigenetics. These are the lifestyle, behavior, and habits that can turn on and off our genes. There's also this funny misconception that your metabolism slows down with age, which makes it harder to keep the weight off. And I was having this discussion with an older doctor and she was telling me that I needed to be grateful for my metabolism. But there was a study out of, in 2021, that discovered that a person's metabolic rate actually stays relatively stable between the ages of 20 and 60, after which it begins to decline about 0.7% per year. This was a study called the Daily Expenditure Through the Human Life Course by Ponser et al. in 2021. So the, the fundamentals of weight loss and muscle maintenance. You're probably already familiar, if you've listened to my podcast, with the whole concept of calories in in the context of weight loss. The concept of calories in is based off the second law of thermodynamics, which states that energy cannot be created, created or destroyed. It can only be transferred from one form to another. So if you look at it in terms of a formula, you want to say that energy, or ES, rate of change in the body, is equal to energy in, consumed via food and calories, minus energy out, or the energy dissipated through heat. Again, this is the calories in, calories out model. I have talked about this model before in Jason Fung's book. And in simpler terms, this law states that you have to be in a negative energy balance to lose weight, and to gain weight, you have to be in an energy surplus. However, we know it's a lot more nuanced than this. This law does not take into account a person's baseline weight status and whether there has been fat gained during the hormonal changes or muscle gained during different uh, of, this, of these changes. You know, it doesn't take into account the insulin, leptin resistance, thyroid dysfunction, all that. And many people still believe in the whole calories in, calories out dogma. It is assumed that by consuming fewer calories than you burn, your body taps into its energy stores or body fat to compensate for the lack. If you consume calories above your energy homeostasis, your body will store that energy in the adipose tissue. This is the mechanistic view on the thermodynamics within the human metabolism. However, when calories in goes down, basal metabolic rate also tends to go down. So again, the whole calories in calories out is a lot more nuanced. And every person's homeostatic energy balance is subjective and varies greatly, even day to day. There's also many additional contributing factors that affect the threshold of your metabolic homeostasis. Now, most of them are controllable with lifestyle habits. For example, women who reported to have one or more stressors during a 24-hour cycle tended to burn 104 fewer calories than those who weren't stressed out. And this is thought to be due to the idea that higher cortisol suppresses fat oxidation. Here is an also important fun fact. Lean muscle tissue 
burns two to three times the amount of calories than fat mass. Thus, having more muscle allows you to burn more fat. On top of that, we already know previously that different macronutrients have their own thermic effect, with protein burning the most calories upon digestion. So, someone eating a higher protein diet will see different results from someone eating a low protein diet, even when they consume the same amount of calories. Again, this whole episode will be about nuances and how it's not as simple as looking in how many calories you take in versus how many calories you take out. And here are some other things that will increase your metabolism. So one is muscle mass. I already mentioned this. Having more lean muscle mass will help you burn more amount of calories than fat mass at a rest. Physical activity and exercise, obviously. Having a higher thyroid function, higher protein intake, as I mentioned eating more calories, and having more body weight overall. Some things that may reduce your metabolic rate are things like chronic stress, having a low thyroid function, living in a sedentary lifestyle, having low muscle mass, being over the age of 60, uh, chronic low calorie intake, and also over-consuming highly processed foods like sugars and refined carbohydrates. There are things that determine your total daily energy expenditure, or TDEE. The most important one is the basal metabolic rate. This refers to how many calories you're burning at rest by doing absolutely nothing. It includes fueling all the fundamental physiologic processes that are going on in your your body right now, like breathing, blood circulation, heartbeat, brain function, etc. BMR accounts for up to 60 to 70% of your total daily energy expenditure. There's also exercise activity thermogenesis, which consists of the number of calories you burn during deliberate exercise. So when you are going to the gym and you are resistance training or when you're running, this is the exercise activity thermogenesis. There is also the non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT. This refers to how many calories you burn during during you know, spontaneous movements throughout the day that you don't even realize. This is stuff like tapping your foot, fidgeting, doing laundry, taking the stairs. And NEAT can actually contribute up to around 20% of your total daily energy expenditure, according to one study. And finally, on the calories outside, there's also the thermic effect of food, or TEF. This describes the number of calories spent on digesting the food you just ate, And for reminders, protein has the highest thermic effect of food. Carbs have the, you know, know, second or third or second or third with 7 to 15%. Alcohol has about 15% and then fat 2 to 4%. And again, this is all compared to protein, which has about 20 to 30% of the thermic effect of food when you're burning. Um, So this is whole, you have to take all this into account, your total daily energy expenditure, your NEAT, your EAT, your TEF, and your BMR. All of this contributes to your TDEE, or total daily energy expenditure. There are a lot of formulas that measure your resting metabolic rate. There's one called the Cunningham equation, and another one called the Harris-Benedict equation, and a third one called the Mifflin-Saint-Gior equation, and then there's a lot more. But the Cunningham equation is very similar to the Harris-Benedict equation, except it uses lean body mass as a foundation, making it superior for athletes like me. So here is the Cunningham equation for your resting metabolic rate. 
Resting metabolic rate equals 22 times lean body mass plus 500. By figuring out your lean body mass, you can find your resting metabolic rate. And he has a very important point about weight loss. So losing one pound of weight has been deemed to require about 3,500 calories in energy deficit. This is based on the assumption of losing solely adipose tissue, which consists of 87% fat. However, weight loss does not always equal fat loss. Your body can always lose a lot of muscle and lean tissue while predominantly keeping the fat. Weight loss also includes a loss of water, glycogen stores, and triglycerides. Too many people focus on the number on the scale or seeing themselves look skinnier but with less muscle after dieting because they have lost lean tissue. This sole focus on weight loss may cause detrimental effects to health after dieting because of the reduction in lean body mass and often results in weight regain. Again, the point of weight loss is to lose weight in the form of fat, not in the form of muscle. And a very low calorie diet, which is something like less than 800 calories a day, does result in fat loss, but it also makes you lose a substantial amount of lean muscle as well. So crash dieting and near starvation states are not optimal for muscle maintenance. Muscle is really key here. The loss of lean tissue happens primarily due to muscle protein breakdown to really help support the endogenous production of glucose by the liver. So your protein, eventually when you don't get enough calories, gets broken down into the amino acids substrate, which then help make glucose to help fuel your body. So we will be getting into strategies that you can help spare muscle while also losing fat at the same time. And there is a study that shows that combining resistance training or high intensity interval training with higher protein intake is more effective in lean mass preservation and fat loss and fat loss compared to low protein control group during two weeks of low calorie dieting. So we should really be shooting for one gram per pound of lean body mass. And again, the study shows that if your protein intake is high enough, you can still lose weight but help keep enough of your muscle on if you get that one gram per pound of body weight. When in a calorie deficit, some muscle is inevitably lost, but you can mitigate it to a great extent. For the sake of physiologic performance, aesthetics, and overall health, the goal should always be to maintain as much muscle as possible while increasing the proportion of weight loss coming from fat loss. And of course, you have to remember the whole idea of what you don't use, you lose. So in a study where subjects consumed about 800 calories a day from liquids, the subjects who did resistance training saw no decrease in their lean body mass after 12 weeks, whereas the ones who did only aerobic exercise saw their lean body mass drop 3 to 5 um, kilograms. Importantly, their resting metabolic rate was also lower. So they took two groups. They were both consuming... 800 calories a day from liquids. One group did resistance training, the other group did aerobic training. And the ones who did resistance training while on this 800 calories were able to maintain muscle mass, whereas the ones who did mainly aerobic exercise not only dropped their lean body mass, but also their resting metabolic rate slowed down. And to move a little bit forward, there was the study in 2021 showing how important 
it really is to do resistance training when it comes to weight loss and keeping on the muscle. So this was a study by Vecchetti Jr. et al. And not only does the lifting weight signal the body to increase your own metabolic rate by promoting lean muscle tissue growth, it also has beneficial effects on fat loss directly. So again, the study in 2021 found that hypertrophic stimuli from mechanical overload releases extracellular vesicles that contain muscle-specific microRNA that are preferentially taken up by white adipose tissue. So we are mechanical overloading, we are lifting weights, and we are releasing these vesicles that come from muscle that contain miRNA. These vesicles will then travel to our white adipose tissue and bind to these beta-3 receptors, the adrenergic receptors, and cause lipolysis or fat breakdown. And this promotes metabolic adaptation towards burning more fat. In other words, I know that's all very physiologically complex, but building more muscle leads to more fat loss. This is what you have to remember. Additionally, resistance training is one of the most effective ways to increase insulin sensitivity. This has been shown in many studies. And it helps improve the glucose disposal and nutrient partitioning by helping with glycogen storage as opposed to fat storage. Now, insulin resistance in obesity is related to to a decreased total body glucose disposal and occurs predominantly in skeletal muscle. This is why a lot of people like Gabrielle Lyon state that insulin resistance really begins in the muscle. And we know with near muscle contractions that we can upregulate GLUT4 transporters, which help take in glucose into the cell and help with glycogen storage. And in other words, obesity and type 2 diabetes can be thought of as a deficiency in resistance training and muscle mass. So they are kind of inversely proportional. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead here and talk about the body fat set point theory and satiety. The body fat set point theory states that your body tries to maintain a specific weight range and balance. You can think of it as a thermostat like you have in your house. When you move either too high or too low away from the set point, the body will respond by trying to get back into homeostasis. Both genetics and epigenetics determine your body fat set point or the current window of homeostasis. And again, this is all regulated by the hypothalamus, where a lot of different hormones get released, one of them being leptin, and this is where the whole leptin discussion uh, comes in. So although leptin comes from fat cells, they end up going to your hypothalamus and regulating different genes there. So leptin gets released from your body fat cells, and it's often referred to as the satiety hormone, And the role of leptin is really to control the body's energy balance, food intake, and also influence the amount of calories you expend. Whenever you receive too many calories or nutrients, leptin is supposed to send a message to your brain to stop eating. So we get released from fat cells, goes up to our brain, bind to G-protein coupled receptors, and cause us to be more satiated. It is thought that leptin resistance is one of the main risk factors for obesity. Leptin resistance partially Uh, Partly from chronically elevated, uh, the reason leptin resistance occurs is because of too much leptin in the the blood. It's called hyperleptinemia. This is very similar to insulin resistance, actually. It will downregulate 
the cellular response to leptin. So normally when we eat, we get calories and fat cells will secrete leptin. The brain detects the leptin and we stop eating. This is the cycle. But of course, the cycle gets broken when we become leptin resistant. So here are some things that promote leptin resistance. Sleep deprivation and circadian rhythm mismatch promote leptin resistance. Leptin levels are dependent on sleep duration. Frequently high levels of leptin lower the body's response to leptin and food consumption. Inflammation from stress, environmental toxins, or inflammatory foods. These are some of the things that promote leptin resistance. High triglycerides prevent leptin from entering the brain. Defective autophagy and cellular turnover contribute to leptin resistance. And overeating too many comfort foods overrides the brain that can also dysregulate leptin. So all these things contribute to leptin resistance. Moving forward and sticking with the whole theme of satiety. Satiety, again, a lot of this is regulated by protein. There's this idea that if we don't get enough protein, you are not fully satiated. So you eat until you get sufficient amount of protein, which is the, you know, the majority of cases fall somewhere between like 20 to 30 of your total calories at minimum. In general, a good ratio for protein is about, you know, 35% of your daily calories should come from protein. Protein intake has also been found to promote satiety by reducing ghrelin, the hunger hormone. A higher protein meal lowers postprandial ghrelin levels much more than a high-carb meal. And of course, there's multiple studies backing this up. Here are some other hormones that help with satiety. So neuropeptide Y, or NPY, this is a hormone that stimulates appetite, particularly for carbohydrates. Stress and prolonged food deprivation elevate neuropeptide Y, which can cause rebound overeating and weight gain. Low protein intake and fasting for over 24 hours also increase neuropeptide Y expression in animals. Now, the, the most important hormone here is GLP. This is the glucagon-like peptide. This is a hormone that is produced by the gut whenever you eat something. GLP regulates our blood sugar and appetite, and it acts through various mechanisms. One of the mechanisms is by binding two receptors in the central nervous system. It binds to the POMC slash CART receptors and activates downstream signaling, which increases satiety. GLP also binds to neuropeptide Y hormones and inhibits it. Remember, neuropeptide Y normally helps stimulate appetite. GLP inhibits neuropeptide Y. GLP also has an influence on our dopamine system and it decreases the intake of the hyperpalatable foods. And it also decreases the anticipatory food reward as well. So it acts on the dopamine system as well. And we know GLPs, one of the reasons they lead to weight loss is because they slow gastric emptying and also slow peristalsis and also allow for some gastric distension, causing us to eat less. This is why people with who are on GLP agonists like semaglutide, liraglutide, lose so much weight. And we know other things like short-chain fatty acids, you know, butyrate. This helps stimulate GLP from intestinal cells as well. Glycine also has been shown to stimulate GLP release. And another hormone that's very important is CCK or cholecystokinin. 
This is another satiety hormone produced by gut cells. Higher levels of CCK have been shown to lead to a decrease in food intake in both lean and obese individuals. Like with other hormones, protein and fiber consumption raise CCK levels. Peptide YY is another hormone released from intestinal cells that help reduce food intake. High blood sugar levels lower postprandial satiety and peptide YY levels in healthy, overweight subjects. Yet again, fiber and protein increase peptide YY and satiety. Dopamine, finally, is considered the reward molecule, but it's also more of a reward anticipation hormone or you know, neurotransmitter. So obesity results in hypodopaminergic function. We have lower dopamine levels when we are obese. Obese people show altered dopamine neurocircuitry that increase the likelihood of opportunistic overeating while simultaneously making food intake less satisfying and also less goal-oriented and more habitual. So more obesity, less dopamine, less dopamine, less ability to like increase or more ability to cause us, cause us to eat more. So more opportunistic eating is the way he puts it here. So again, all these mechanisms come through different hormones. The most important ones, neuropeptide Y, dopamine, GLP, peptide YY, and CCK. Just the last point here. The goal is to teach your brain to find more reward from, from things that contribute to good health like exercise and eating whole foods instead of reverting to a poor lifestyle choices just because they provide a small window of pleasure. This way, you prevent dopamine resistance and dopamine deficiency thanks to giving your body the nourishment that it needs. Weight loss is a lot more complex than calories in, calories out. This is one of the main points that I've been making. Building more muscle will boost your metabolic rate and cause you to become more satiated. Greater satiety also focuses, you really need to focus on the protein and the fiber, as I said over and over. And we know that if, if you're in a calorie deficit, one of the most important things you can do is consume enough protein. You will lose weight, but you will keep on the muscle, which is what we want. So these are kind of like the main messages from this chapter. Weight loss is very complex. It deals with a lot of neural, neuronal hormonal issues, a lot of epigenetics. And the most important thing you can do is consume your protein, consume your fiber, and continue with your daily resistance training and exercise. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And sorry for waiting so long to publish the next one. I've been really busy. But hopefully I can get to another chapter soon. And thank you for listening.